for Thursday, October 28th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, there's lots of disagreement among scientists about the value of COVID-19 booster shots, even as federal regulators make recommendations for them. We're all in uncharted territory. We're all looking at largely the same data and we're drawing separate conclusions and it's a bit of a scientific free-for-all. Dave O'Connor, a virologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, joins me for a look at the latest with boosters and who they're recommended for. That's next. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Federal regulators now have recommendations for COVID-19 boosters for all vaccines available in the U.S. Data from Israel played a big part in the guidance, says Dave O'Connor, a virologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's with me now to discuss some of that data and navigate some of the confusion around COVID-19 boosters. Dave, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. We have had a lot of movement on recommendations for COVID-19 booster shots in the last few weeks. And I would imagine the average listener who is kind of halfway paying attention maybe knows that something is going on, but they maybe have this question, do I qualify for a booster and which one and when should I get it? Is there a simple way to kind of break down what the current recommendations are for boosters? (laughs) Simple way? Not really. And unfortunately, that's a bit of a problem because uh, it's made it very difficult for people to track and decide what they should themselves do. I think that the best guidance that we have comes from Israel, where they are about three months ahead of us. 50% of their adults were vaccinated by the middle of February, and it took about three months longer until 50% of adults in the U.S. were vaccinated. So that means that they're a crystal ball into what we'll see in our future. What they found was that the vaccine started waning and they started seeing more of these breakthrough infections. And they started seeing 
more people getting sick. And that motivated them to start administering boosters first to their older population at the end of July, and then to everyone at the end of August. And that is the data that makes people like me really enthusiastic about what the vaccines can do. If you get a third dose of the mRNA vaccines, at least five or six months after your first series, or a second dose of the Johnson & Johnson after the same sort of interval. I actually have the recommendations from the CDC pulled up here. So as you mentioned, for these two mRNA vaccines, these are the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. There's a recommendation for a booster shot after six months for people who work in high-risk settings, teachers or healthcare workers, or say people 65 and older. And then for everyone 18 and older who got a J&J shot for their initial series, they have a booster recommended for them. What do you make of these recommendations that we have before us now that have really just solidified in the last week or so? Well, I think they're overly complex. I think that you know there is a, a strong inertia, a strong gravitational pull towards keeping things the way they are and that people are resistant and reluctant to make the same sort of bold changes that they made in Israel. And so you end up with incrementalism. Unfortunately, you end up with a bit of a free-for-all in terms of opinions and depending on, you know, which loudmouth scientist you are hearing on the radio or the podcast or the TV, you get their own viewpoint. The reality is that none of us really know for sure what the best path is. We're all in uncharted territory. We're all looking at largely the same data and we're drawing separate conclusions. And it's a bit of a scientific free-for-all. And that can be profoundly unsettling to know that there isn't anyone who knows the right path forward and that there's cases that can be made for uh, different types of approaches. Me personally, I look at the Israeli data and I see that as providing clarity that more boosters is going to be beneficial in multiple ways for people, both who get the boosters, uh, for the communities in which they live, and then also for the people who are in those communities who, for one reason or another, remain unvaccinated or for whom the vaccines aren't going to work as well. So I personally would love to see more clarity, but I think we live in an incremental society. And so, you know, it's, it's going to take some time to get there draw out your kind of belief in boosters and the impact they could have. Sure. So, you know, let's make a metaphor here because it's kind of been a bit of a free-for-all, kind of like WWE wrestling when you watch the different sorts of viewpoints that are being exchanged, and it can be equally hard to follow. So, you know, one way to think about it is that the vaccines uh, are like WWE championship belts. If you don't have one, you should want any of them. And the intercontinental title, it's a great championship belt to have. Luminaries in the WWE have have held this belt. That's akin to what we're seeing right now with people who got the vaccines earlier in the year. You get protection from severe disease. You get protection from hospitalization. You get protection from death. Those vaccines still provide something on the order of 80% protection from all of those really bad things that you don't want to have happen. But the booster is like the WWE Universal Championship. It's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the top one. It gives you all of those advantages that the vaccines have given us before, and it actually makes them better. It still protects from severe disease, 
hospitalization and death and probably does that better. But it also provides protection from becoming infected with the Delta variant in the first place. And so what they saw in Israel was that when they compared people who had gotten two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, um, and then they vaccinated them again with the third dose of the Pfizer vaccine, for the first couple of days, there was no difference in how frequently they were getting infected in you know, the first couple of days after they got the third dose, because it takes a little time for that dose to kick in. But then once it kicked in, what they saw was that people who had uh, that third dose were 20 times less likely to have severe disease than people who had the two doses of Pfizer earlier in the year. And they were 10 times less likely to become infected at all. Mm-hmm. So it acted as a fire break against becoming infected if you had this third dose. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, people who had the two doses were suddenly totally vulnerable again. The people who had two doses were still way, way better uh, off than people who were unvaccinated. Unvaccinated people in Israel, still about 30% of the population there, kind of the same number that we see here in the U.S., remained at by far the highest risk group in terms of hospitalization and severe disease. But having a third dose, way better than having a second dose. We've also heard that argument from uh, top public health officials. You know, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who leads the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has said on multiple occasions, we're not going to boost our way out of this pandemic, but that this is an effective way to slow infections, even though the primary series does provide good protection against severe disease. How does that balance out against the fact that we still have substantial portions of this country Um, those proportions are larger in some parts of the country than others, of people who are not vaccinated. Is this extra protection that boosters provide against infection somehow completely undone by the fact that we still have lots of folks who haven't gotten their first shots? Well, I mean, I don't think it's undone. So to extend the WWE metaphor, you know, the actual universal champion, Roman Reigns, is twice a leukemia survivor who potentially could be immunosuppressed. And so you have uh, people who are immunosuppressed because they're cancer survivors or because they're transplant recipients or because they have other medical conditions. We still have populations of kids who can't get vaccinated because they're too young. Hopefully that's gonna be changing soon. And so the question that you have to ask is, does having the boosters and people who are vaccine willing make those other populations safer, people who are unvaccinated or for whom the vaccine isn't working as well as you might hope. And the answer, again, coming out of Israel says yes, that they saw that about three weeks after they uh, started the third dose uh, boosters, they saw the rates of infection in vaccinated people coming down dramatically. And then uh, several weeks after that, they saw a corresponding decrease in unvaccinated people infections. The reason for that is that once vaccinated people were no longer able to be infected at as efficient a rate, it gave the virus fewer paths through the population. It gave it fewer hosts that it could infect. And Mm -hmm. indirectly that provides a benefit to the unvaccinated and those where the vaccines might not work quite as well. This is, did you wash your hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Dave O'Connor, a virologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about the latest data and recommendations on COVID-19 vaccine boosters. 
Are there any arguments that you've heard from people in this free-for-all <laughs> of different opinions about boosters, um, arguments from people who say, well, maybe we don't need these right now that, that you find are particularly compelling or at least make some kind of logical sense? Well, you know, again, I think that this is how the sausage is made in science is people, uh, it is a free-for-all of ideas. And I think the public is getting insight into how science always happens, usually just with much less notoriety, where people see the data, they draw their interpretations and conclusions and, you know, respond accordingly. I understand the reluctance to say that we need boosters because that somehow implies that what we said earlier in the year is undone and that that means that the existing vaccines without boosters are somehow bad. And that's just not true. And I think that, you know, you can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. One is that the vaccines that we got earlier in the year were a spectacular success. And prior to the emergence of Delta, we're responsible for the huge reduction in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths throughout the United States, even though we didn't get everyone vaccinated. And I think you can make a very compelling case that we would have, we would be in a better place if 99% of Americans were vaccinated than we would by giving third doses to those who are vaccine willing. I would agree with that completely. What I don't really agree with is that that's a choice that we have. I, I don't think that there is a limited, a zero sum amount of vaccine available where if we give third doses right now, we're giving that to people who would otherwise be getting their first doses. The best argument against boosting right now is the worry that there is a huge global vaccine inequity and that we are getting third vaccine doses in the U.S. when large parts of the world, especially in low-income countries, haven't had any access yet. That one is someone who spent his career thinking about HIV in developing countries, you know, gives me real pause. But when I dug into the numbers, I was sort of horrified to learn that in September, uh, NBC News reported that we had wasted more than 12 million vaccine doses in the U.S. because we would open a vial and then use one dose and then throw the other ones away. And, you know, when you hear about that amount of waste in the existing system, it strikes me that the doses that are going into arms as boosters today are not doses that would otherwise be used in Sudan next week. Uh, that those are sort of separable problems that both need to be solved and both need to be solved urgently. But not vaccinating here doesn't translate into an immediate benefit somewhere else. Prior to federal regulators here in the U.S. Um, having a discussion about boosters, they had a discussion about third shots, specifically for these mRNA vaccines for folks who were severely immunocompromised. And those third shots, federal regulators made very clear, were not boosters. They were intended to have people who are immunocompromised get the same kind of immune response that, say, your non-immunocompromised person would have after a two-shot regimen. Why does this language matter? Does it matter that we call these boosters as opposed to third shots? 
you know, again, I think this is the sort of uh, language and semantic discussion that would be better in a scientific conference than in lay messaging, to be honest. In both cases, you're administering the vaccine dose so that you amplify the immune response. That's the point. And it's the same point in both cases. And so I think that needlessly complicates things. Should these discussions then not be happening in public? And I want to clarify that by saying they always do. The uh, FDA advisory board that meets about vaccines, those meetings are public. The same with the vaccine advisory panel to the CDC. It's just they're getting tons more attention than they normally do. Is there some value, you think, to a little bit less scrutiny over what are effectively uh, you know, very nitpicky, hair-splitty uh, semantic arguments that all of a sudden you know, make it on to the front page news? I'm a big fan of transparency. I think we need more transparency in all aspects of our lives. And I think that science and medicine benefit enormously from transparency and decision-making. But when that ends up also crossing over into public messaging, uh, it becomes a, a very different beast. So what ends up happening when you message publicly is you have to consider how people respond to different messages. It becomes less about immunology and more about behavioral psychology. And when you have immunologists crafting messages that are better left to people who are in the social sciences, who know how to drive people's decision-making, who know how to tailor messages, how to market messages, how to reach people where they are, that's where I think there's this disconnect where those two things aren't the same thing. You should have the immunology conversation. You should have the parsing over the data conversation and what it means, and you should arrive at the decision. But then at that point, you need to think about how you reach people where they are and getting into differences between third doses, additional doses and booster doses, and somehow expecting people to parse that language cleanly, I think is a huge ask for anyone who's a non-specialist. And I think it makes it really difficult for people to understand what the right thing is for them and for their loved ones to do when they are presented with excessive complexity. These recommendations for boosters have come out in the U.S. less than a year after the first shot started going into arms. So even in countries like Israel, we haven't had a long time to really look at the impact that boosters will have a year from now, two years from now. We just, not that much time has elapsed. Do you have a sense of when we will really start to get a sense of whether boosters will be something that's needed regularly? At what intervals? What kind of time period are you really keeping an eye on to say, okay, well, now we're going to have enough data about whether or not this was the right approach. Well, so I think there's data on different timescales. So the first is, is it safe? You know, that's what you want to know first and foremost. Am I putting myself or my family at risk by getting boosters? And the Israelis have now provided more than 3 million boosters with no strong safety signal. And so I think that's important to remember first and foremost, that you can get boosted with these vaccines very, very safely. The second thing we know from all the data that exists is that the magnitude of the immune response that's elicited following boosting several months after the initial vaccine series is much stronger than it is 
immediately after you get your first or second shot. So if your immune response after the first two doses is a, is a 10, maybe after the third dose, it goes up to being a 50. And now after it goes up to being a 50, is it gonna keep coming down? Yeah, probably. Uh, the question is how much does it come down and how quickly? Uh, it might be that if you're starting at a much higher level, it's gonna take a lot longer to come down to a level that puts you at risk of becoming infected or having symptomatic or severe disease again. Uh, it might be that it comes down pretty fast. We don't know that right now. Uh, what we do know though, is that we're going into a winter, our second COVID winter in the US, where all the kids are back in school, people are out, uh, the economy is open, people are getting together in places, people are going to go see their families and loved ones for the holidays. Uh, there's going to be much more behavioral risk this winter than there was last winter. So if we can intercept some of that risk by making a fraction of the population who is vaccine enthusiastic or vaccine willing immune from becoming infected, getting that 10 times reduced risk of becoming infected relative to what it would be if they didn't get that third dose, then we have the potential to make this winter easier than it would otherwise be. And to me, that is the time horizon that we need to worry about. If we get through the winter and things look great and we have to redress boosters again next spring, summer, or fall, hey, fine. Like, we'll deal with that when, when we get there, but let's get through the winter first. Dave O'Connor is a virologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.